In Illinois, Democrats mostly ran the table in Tuesday's election from the governor's race and down the ballot. These days ahead will be hard, but do not tell me the fight cannot be won. The fabric of our nation has been frayed and torn before, and Illinois has always had a large role in putting it back together. Illinois must be better. Our leaders must be better. And J.B. Pritzker, you need to be better. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing news, including how home prices around the Chicago area didn't budge at all last week. And that's the first time that's happened in more than two years. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, November 10th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. Hi there and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host Amy Guth and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey Dennis, how are you? Great, Amy, how are you? I'm well. I'm, I'm a little sleepy because I was up very late watching election results, but I'm here for this. I, I would never miss this. Ever. It's the highlight of my week, Dennis. All right. Well, let's talk about home prices because we've been talking about them moving for the last couple of years and how they've been changing week over week. But that's different over the last week. Tell me. It is. Uh, for the week ended November 7th, home prices for the Chicago region, Chicago metro area, were flat. The median, home pr the median price of homes sold in that week was the same as it had been the, uh, the same week a year before. $270,000. Um, this is only one week. It doesn't mean that prices are flat for good, but it does mean that it's the end of a very long string that you and I have discussed of uh, not only price increases, but price increases on top of price increases, because um, all this year and in part of 2021, we were seeing big price increases compare or on top of the big price increases from the corresponding time a year right, before. Right. So it's like price jump and then a price jump on top of that the next year. 124 weeks uh, beginning in June 2020, um, prices were up from a year before. And June 2020 is really when the first closings of the pandemic started to happen. Um, you might remember we talked in March and April and there was there was concern. Is the housing market going to you know be at a standstill? And then right. it took a little while before the boom really kicked in. Those first closings were really in June. Prices uh, in one of the weeks of June were down just a little from the year before. And then from then forward, they were always up. They were often up more than 10% from the corresponding week a, a year before. And one week they were up 27% uh, from the year before, but that had to do with some pandemic dipping. Um, but for 124 weeks, prices were up. And so we're, 124 weeks is, of course, more than two years. So we come yeah. back to that idea that it was rising on top of rising. Um, finally, the week of uh, the, the week that ended November 7th, that came to an end. I don't know what will happen for the week that ends November 14th. Of course, I'll be looking at that data. But what it does mean is that, you know, finally things appear to be getting back closer to normal. I, I had one real estate agent say to me, you know, we knew it couldn't go on forever. And actually, I think this is a good thing, she said, because uh, those very fast rising prices were taking away people's affordability. Yeah. Are we seeing this in any other cities or is this kind of specific to Chicago? Well, this data I use is from is from Midwest real estate data, which covers northern Illinois. And oh, yeah. and before I answer that question, let me be clear. We have talked you and I have talked recently about Chicago city of prices mm -hmm. being flat or down. Right. 
This is the first time the whole region has been down. All the times city of prices have been down or flat. Uh, the the region overall has been rising. Chicago Chicago sales are approximately one out of every five sales in the region, or approximately twenty percent of sales. Now the whole region is flat, um, and and this is regional data. I don't have the the comparable data in other cities, but we have seen that um, from Case Schiller and others that in other cities things have really started to come down. Whether right. prices have started to drop or just stop growing as much as they were. I don't really know because, you know, I, I spend all my time looking at Chicago. It will be interesting to kind of t- two things, really, to see how this shakes out with other cities and regions in the U.S., if this is just kind of a nationwide thing that we're stepping into. And then it will also be interesting to see if this continues for a while, if this continues towards the end of the year, what happens. As you've said, we're kind of starting to enter the, the time in which it does, gen- like things kind of slow down a bit. And yeah, and that's one of the things when when I did a story on similar weekly data where we talked about uh, new contract, both new contracts by buyers right. and new listings by sellers being down. Some people said, well, it's seasonality, but the the it actually it may be the return of seasonality because in the prior two years it hadn't happened. Same is true here. Yes, prices are, are flat and have been growing very slowly. Um, like a normal November, but the point is that the prior two Novembers were not normal. Prices were up uh, this same time last year. They were up about 10% from the year before. And and the same time two years ago, they were up about 16% from a year before. So um, while it is true that in general, our real estate market is very cyclical, and when it starts to get cold, sales and everything else start to slow down, it wasn't true for two full years. So where this might look like, if you just took it as isolated, just kind of a standalone little piece of data, it might look like almost bad news. But in fact, looking at the totality of the last few years, it looks, it reads like a sense of normalcy, perhaps returning to the market. And that's something agents have been talking about a lot is um, various forms of normalcy are coming back. Sure. People aren't having to stand in line to get into a house. Um, they aren't having to bid over the asking price. Um, interest rates, if, if you're a certain age, interest rates are getting just back to where they were. Most of the 20th, uh, what century are we in? Most of the 21st century interest rates were well below where they are now. Yeah. Um, but up until about 2005, 7% didn't seem so strange. And in the 90s, 80s, 70s, that was really a good number. Um, so in a lot of ways, we seem to be returning to normalcy, but I don't want to gild the lily. Um, yeah. It's tough right now. Um, sales are way down. People who have homes on the market are seeing no foot traffic in many cases. There are also pockets of the region where um, homes are still going over the asking price, but it's very different now than it was, say, a year ago and two years ago. So you and I have talked before about a beach rights case in Indiana, uh, and now the, uh, the Supreme Court will not be hearing that case. Tell me more about that. So this is a case that has to do with a, a strip of beach. We've talked about it before. There's a strip of beach with private homes next to them. That strip of beach is between two pieces of the Indiana Dunes National Park. Right. The homeowners, when the Indiana Dunes National Park was being assembled, in about 1980, they signed what was known as a walking easement, meaning you could walk on the beach behind their house, and that was it. And they have sued in recent years because they say that a lot more people are hanging out back there. They're walking, but not only walking behind my house, but picnicking, playing volleyball, barbecuing. And they, as they see it, they have rights to, they have hanging out rights. You don't, and, and I do, I live here. Um, the state... Uh, Indiana state law changed that and said, no, actually, you have never owned that beach. Um, And they went to the Supreme Court claiming, well, we've got these documents from the federal government in 1980 granting this walking easement between the two pieces of park. You could walk on our beach. This is, they claimed, this is an acknowledgement by the federal government that we do have those rights and that the government needed to, you know, essentially borrow them from us. Supreme Court said, we're not hearing it. So that means that um, you can look at this two ways. One of the ways a lot of people reported it was this is a victory for people who want to go to that beach, that this is a victory for public use of the beach. And that is one way to see it. 
Another is that these people had an assumption based on legal documents that they had a certain amount of ownership over that beach, and now they no longer do. And that's really, to me, what the case is about. It comes down to there's kind of two truths here based on competing legal documentation kind of gives you two versions. And it really, to me, as the story advanced, was about, well, which document will prevail, which will be considered the truth. Yeah, I have a document from 1980 saying that you can't hang around on my beach, but I have a an Indiana Supreme Court ruling from, I think it's 2018, saying you can hang around on my beach, which is it? And yes, you're exactly right. It's two, two interpretations based on two legal documents, but with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declining to hear the case, we now know which of those That's uh, right. interpretations prevails. Well, thanks for bringing that that uh, that story back around because we were all, you know, everybody was kind of wondering about that one. All right, well, let's go to Hinsdale now and talk about preservation. You know, this is a fascinating story. I have been, uh, well, I've been covering real estate since about the 17th century, and <laughs> some of that has been in Hinsdale. Hinsdale has been the teardown capital of our region yeah. for decades. There are a lot of teardowns in Winnetka, in Wilmette, in Glencoe, uh, in Humboldt Park and many other places, but in Hinsdale, it has been really the most pronounced um, since uh, just in the course of the 21st century, just since 2000, one out of four houses in Hinsdale has been demolished, nearly all of those replaced by another. Since 1987, 2,215 teardowns in Hinsdale. And they've tried many things to slow this down. One of the reasons it's hard to slow down is that Older houses, in many cases, are difficult to update to meet modern lifestyles. I want a great room. I want the the family room kitchen combination. Um, I want a very large primary bath. And within the envelope that I have, which is not only the existing house, but how much zoning would allow me to expand it, I can't do those things. Um, So the market ends up saying, well, then we'll tear it down and we'll build a new one. which is not to say that you you shouldn't build new houses. Um, The question here is just, can we make it easier for people to hold on to older houses? What one of the uh, uh, preservationists in Hinsdale said to me is, what can we give you, the owner of an existing house, that you couldn't get from a new build, which might make it an incentive to keep the old house. So they've got this sort of suite of incentives they'll offer. They're creating a what's called a historic overlay district. It's a it's an opt-in. You have not been declared a landmark and, and none of your property rights have been taken away, but you have said, I've got an older house. Can you check it out and see whether I belong in this historic overlay district? And if I do, and by the way, I can always opt back out if I decide, yeah, I want to tear it down. But if I do opt into this historic overlay district, there's a document placed on my deed in the with the county that says um, that says I'm in that district and I'm eligible for permit fee waivers. I'm eligible for a property tax rebate if I spend a certain amount on updates of the house. But one of the biggest is I'm very likely to be eligible for a bigger footprint of that house, uh, a larger the, the term is FAR, floor area ratio, which is how much building there can be on the square footage of land you have. And I would, and as a, a residence that's in that historic overlay district, I'd be eligible for more FAR than the regulations now allow. The idea being to incentivize um, keeping older houses to make it easier to keep them so fewer of them get torn down. So if you get that FAR and you're allowed to to increase that square footage and increase the footprint of the home, are you saying that would you would get more allowance than if you built new? Or yes, that's you the would, idea okay. is that um, if you take this house down and build, you can get X square feet, but keeping the existing house and adding to it, we'd give you X plus 10. Okay. That sort of thing, which is which is one good incentive. Yeah. Um, and, and then the others there, you know, there are the permit fees that are waived and that sort of thing. All what a couple of people told me, both people who, who favor this and people who think it may not work, said um, Hinsdale is using every single tool it has. It's basically saying, here, we've got all these things we can offer you. Take them. You know, you might take all of them. You might take five of them, whatever it is. But we have all these tools that might make it um, easier for you to keep the house. 
Yeah. And um, and it, it's a great idea. However, I just hinted that some people are, uh, it, it's not that anybody has said, no, you shouldn't do this. But one person I spoke to who uh, whose house we've discussed here, who did a very large, very extensive rehab of a prairie style house that might otherwise have been torn down. Um, what he said is, you know, this is great. They have gone into the tool shed and they've said, what do we have? Let's take everything and offer it. However, he said, it won't move the needle on cost. A lot of mm. these rehabs are so expensive. You know, you're, if you're going to take off the back wall and add a family room and, and the second floor of that is going to be a, ma- a primary bath and things like that, um, the, the cost is so much that the financial incentives in this toolkit really aren't enough to make a difference. That's and really interesting. that's what we're going to see going down the line. Will the uh, will the financial incentives and the other incentives like the um, waving you through, will those be enough to slow the pace of teardowns in Hinsdale? That's so interesting. So why, why Hinsdale? Why so many there? Uh, well, because it, you know, it started out as a little country village. There, there is a district of big houses from the, mm-hmm. the late 19th, early 20th century, but there are also uh, districts of just sort of middle-class, middle, mid-sized housing that now appears to some people defunct because, you know, it's too small for me to do all that I just said, add a family room and big primary bath suite and and all the other things we might want. Um, And so it's, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with just sort of the, um, the evolution of the suburbs into places where this particular suburb where affluent people build houses. It also, there's also a, a technical thing that, we don't need to spend too much time on, but Hinsdale is not a home rule community and many of our other suburbs are home rule communities. So Hinsdale is limited in the legislative, um, uh, on the legislative side, it can't just say, no, we're not gonna have teardowns. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, um, you know, it, one of the reasons there have been so many teardowns is Hinsdale's gorgeous. Right. You know, Hinsdale's a People beautiful wanna be place there. To, yeah. yeah. People want to be there and they come in. What what one very long-term resident said to me is, uh, so he's in favor of keeping old houses, but he understands why people come in and take them down because he's been rehabbing his house for like 40 years. Mm-hmm. And he told me, and we said in the story, it's not done yet. Yeah. Um, so you come in, you're in your child rearing years. Um, you've got all these other things going on. You both have jobs. Your kids are on the soccer field, whatever it is. How much time do you have to rehab? Mm-hmm. You don't. And it takes a while. And by then, you know, your housing needs may have changed. While if you can buy a new house that has all those things you expected, then you can go about your business of your two jobs and the soccer field and everything else. Um, so it, it, there really is sort of a market demand for newer homes in a place like Hinsdale. Interesting. And so are these tools available now or, or will they be, is there a waiting period? Uh, it's well, they're right now they're in the process of putting together this historic overlay district list. And then when people are on it, they will then become eligible for these tools. Interesting. All right. Well, let's move to printers row now, speaking of historical areas, uh, and, and take a look at a house there. Tell me about this place. Oh, this one, this house is so interesting. Um, a lot of people said when they saw the picture, that's a house because it's actually kind of a hybrid. It is a home. It's four stories high and look at it. The first floor is retail. But what's interesting, I, it took a while for me to get this straight with the seller and the real estate agent. Uh, it's not a condo. You're not buying only those upper three floors. You own the whole thing, including the retail space in the, on the first floor. That's how the, the architect and homeowner, Chris Talsma, built it, uh, to put some retail on the first floor. There also, also on the first floor is your garage and your just a, an entry foyer. Um, so you own that and you have an income producing tenant on the first floor. Then you rise up three floors, including on this spectacular staircase. That staircase is really, I mean, it looks like a sculpture. It does, it does. not look like a, just this functional staircase. It's it, way beyond utilitarian. Oh, yeah. It's a ribbon and it goes up from the first floor all the way to the fourth. And it's interesting. I mentioned Chris Talsma, the architect. Uh, he's from a firm called Philorama Talsma. And his style, you can see from a lot of the rest of this, is is a little more sleek, a little more minimal. And he said, but my wife said, you know, if we're building something this this big and this impressive, we need a monumental staircase. So he, you know, architects love to design staircases because that's sort of where their sculpt, sculptor side yeah. comes out. And I think he did a really good job. That staircase is pretty cool. 
the house in general is so interesting because so it's again, it's on the upper three floors. It's on two, three and four. You have an outdoor pool on two. This terrace we're looking out at um, is surrounded by a brick wall with window openings. So from the street, you can't tell that people are sitting that, that the people sitting on this terrace are sitting outside um, from on the terrace. You have a little bit of a a sense of enclosure. You're not just sitting out there, you know, in the air next to the train station. Um, just an absolutely wonderful layout. There's the pool and the, and something we're going to come to is, so the lower floors are brick, like a lot of printers row. And then the upper floors are wrapped in this checkerboard screen. Uh, this, the whole building faces south. And so it would be baked by the sun. So one of the ways you mitigate the sun is with this screen, you can, well, you can't see it here, but we'll come to some photos where there's this beautiful screen. It creates a nice shadow pattern inside. It looks really interesting from the street and it also sort of cuts the sun. Um, so just lots of great features in the house. And um, it, it's a very modern house in a very historical setting. But I think that it, I think it fits in pretty well. I'm, I'm sure there is somebody who's going to tell me on Twitter that it does not fit, but I think it looks really good. Um, it's, they're asking $5.95 million, which if it sells within that range would definitely be a record price. The record for the South Loop, which contains Printer's Row, is $3.4 million for a condo that sold in 2018. I couldn't find too many sales over about a million in Printer's Row proper. Um, but look what you get. You're sit so you're sitting outside on your outdoor, really suburban scaled terrace. Yeah. But you've got high rises. You've got the South Loop all around you. You've got a pool um, we haven't seen yet. And uh, here's the pool. And there you can see that terracotta screen, which is also, I mean, it's just really interesting materials everywhere. Not just that ribbon of staircase that we saw, but the terracotta and um, pretty fine place. I mean, huge outdoor space. I'm yeah. sure anyone would get so much use out of that in, in warmer months. But even in winter, it seems like there's so much light here that it would seem kind of warm and airy all year long. Well, yeah. Again, remember, it's facing south. Look at this right. bedroom. Um, you're, the sun is just going to come in and, and warm your space, which is wonderful. And it, the sun is also going to warm the house because there are solar panels on the roof. Um, you know, you've got this big exposure and again, you're looking south. So putting solar panels on top was a great idea. Uh, and here's that pattern that that um, checkerboard screen makes. So you're you can look out through it and see Dearborn Station and things like that. People aren't really able to look in because you're up a few floors. Um, and then when the sun comes in, it's checkerboard all over your your floors and walls. That's so interesting. Yeah, this is a really, really beautiful house. It'll be interesting to see. As you said, that would be not just a record, but that would be a pretty big jump in record if, if this were to sell at the asking price. Yeah, it, I mean, it's different. The headline that one of the editors wrote for the story is a house like no other. And, right. and that is true. Um, and it's, it's also big. So the, the outdoor space is 2,000 square feet. And the interior space of the house is about 7,000 square feet. And then the retail space is another 2,000. Um, so it, it's a it's a large property you're paying that price for if that's the price you pay. Yeah. And isn't there, do I remember that there was another sort of house sitting on top of a building in Printer's Row? Yeah, that's actually, yes, that's uh, that would be about a block, maybe a block and a half north, same street. Um, that's a house that was built. What is that? Is that on the seventh floor? That's a small two-story house that was built on top of an old loft building, right. I think. If I'm remembering correctly, built in the 70s when the loft building was being rehabbed when Printer's Row was going residential. Yeah, two, two truly unique houses, very different concepts, uh, about a block and a half apart. Yeah, how interesting. Maybe that'll be just a thing in Printer's Row, yeah. <laughs> thing that it'll be known for. All right, let's go to Glenview now and uh, talk about a house from there. This is a really nice house. I like this house. This is in a neighborhood called Swainwood in Glenview, which is nice, nice, uh, primarily 50s, 60s, 70s houses. This is a newish one um, built just a few years ago. And 
the family that bought it, it uh, completed in 2018 and then a family bought it and they made some changes. And as I said in the story, you'd expect them to give the house a nip and tuck because one of them is a plastic surgeon. Indeed. Uh, the husband is a plastic surgeon. But she, the wife went in and um, they added a lot of things that really make it, I think it's it's both very comfortable and very glamorous. Here's the exterior. Um, a couple of the changes, the changes she made on the outside are, are not as major as on the inside. She planted roses and she painted the shutters. But inside, um, she here on the right, you've got this office with glass doors. Um, and then when we get to the family room, that's where we see one of the most amazing changes, this wine cellar. Did you see the wine cellar in the story, Amy? This just kills me. It's on the right in this photo. And I think we're going to get another photo of it. So, you know, just what we were describing in Hinsdale, the kind of thing you can't build, big living, uh, big family space with kitchen, great room. They had so much room that she was able to give some up and put in this um, glass-walled wine cellar that holds a few hundred bottles of wine um, right there in the family room. And then here in the dining room, this is where she went kind of glam. She adds these, uh, in this room, she added a very glamorous light fixture. She did that in several rooms. Really made it, it's, a, it's just a great looking house. Here you can see on the right is that office behind glass doors. On the left is that dining room that goes kind of glam. And then in between is a butler's pantry with refrigerated drawers. But then she added another pantry. The, the functional changes she made um, had to do with sort of moving the laundry, creating a mudroom. And she created a big pantry where a lot of the kitchen stuff is just back there so that you're not seeing it in the kitchen. The kitchen then sure. has cleaner lines. And I hope we come to this uh, wine cellar because that's pretty amazing. Um, here's, so here's another change she made. These are, you know, it's very stylish. The house has these steep roofs because it's farmhouse style. So over the bed, there's this angled ceiling and she felt like it, you know, it feels like it's closing in on you. She put wallpaper up there. This is not a change to the real estate so much as a change to the decoration, the finishes, but yeah, it's a it pretty looks detail. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, sorry, I thought we were coming to the wine cellar, but- Plenty of uh, it's, other beautiful things to look at in the meantime. There's just yeah. a lot of really beautiful um, um, design details in this house. Very, very nicely finished. Um, here's the wine cellar. This is the thing that, so again, you're, there's this big family room, right? And the family room is pretty cool because it's essentially an indoor and outdoor. You've got the family room and then a big bluestone terrace that it all spills out onto. You've got the kitchen. And then on one, the other side of the family room, you've got this focal point, as she described it. This is the kind of thing that we sometimes see in somebody's basement. Um, we sometimes see in the dining room, but she put it right there in the family room where, I don't know, I think it, it's it's like, an, it's another piece of sculpture. Like we just described that staircase. It's kind of a fun idea. It's got its own temperature and light controls, you know, so it, it is a separate space, but you're yeah. looking at it while you're, you know, watching the bears together. I mean, the way it's positioned with kind of, and it's sort of wrapped in this glass that goes all the way this, to the to the floor, it almost takes the place of like having this huge built-in aquarium, right? Because it's got this glass and there's visual interest in there. There's something to look at, obviously not moving fish, it's still wine bottles, but it, it's just kind of an, it be, you're exactly right. It becomes like this sculptural focal point that's so interesting. And I can sit there and tell you, you can you see that bottle third from the top? That's right. something we got on our trip to... Exidy Y, that kind of thing. Sure, yeah. sure. As one would do if one had a wine cellar sitting in the living room. <laughs> Don't you watch the bears and talk about fine wine? Right. Isn't that Doesn't what everyone do? do? Isn't that what you do? <laughs> and this is, so this is the, uh, that, what I call the other part of the family room, yeah. the outdoor component. You spill right out into this bluestone terrace. There's, there's sort of an L shape to the house. So once again, a little bit of a sense of enclosure. This is, this is really nice. I, you know, when you walk out from the house onto a big patio and there's everything out there behind you, that's, yeah. that's one sense. Here's a place she described it as sort of a cozy place to be with the kids and the dogs. And it feels that way. It feels just a little more surrounded outdoor oh, space that isn't, you know, totally exposed. Yeah. And it looks like, I mean, there's a big table out there. There's sort of a living area. It looks like in the warmer months, you would just spend all your time out there for sure. If I wasn't at that place in printer's row on that balcony, I'd be here. All right, let's go now to Olympia Fields and talk about a home there. You know, this is I, one of the things I like about the fact that the pandemic is essentially over is that I'm going, I'm going to houses again, 
as opposed to just talking to people on the phone. Sure. And to go to this house and talk to the man who did this rehab was just so fascinating. This is a guy. So the house is built in 1957. Um, it's by John McPherson, who was a, a pretty prolific designer of mid-century houses, primarily in the south suburbs. This one is two pavilions. You can sort of see on the right the garage, and then the house is separate from it. It faces south. There's a big wall of glass in the living room, but the rest of it has these vertical slats because they're trying, you know, try to uh, eliminate the heat gain um, on the south side of the house. It's a really nice house, but it was in bad shape. It was so built in the late 50s, 2008. It's a foreclosure. Um, it's all been painted white. All this beautiful wood had been painted white. Uh, it needs a new roof. And a man comes along, a guy named Bob Schaefer, who says, yeah, I have to bring this back. And he has spent now about 16 years bringing this house, uh, 14 years bringing this house back and doing it by hand. Almost everything you see here looks different than he did than it did when he bought it. And he made the changes. It's not that he lined up a subcontractor to do this and another one to do that. He rebuilt those skylights you can see. Let me pause talking about him to talk about this wall, which is so cool. This is, so you're right inside the front door, you can see, and this just looks like a wall of paneling, but it's actually, all those panels slide open to put, you know, coats or boots or gloves, and so do those drawers. Close it all, they're open for the photo. Close it all, and it just looks like sort of a 1950s wall of paneling, and there's another one like it that is just a 1950s wall of paneling off to the left. But let's go back to Bob Schaefer. Um, he did the, the floors you see in this photo, he laid. Uh, the paint color, the the paint, uh, the bricks were all white. So was a lot of the wood. He stripped all that himself, painted it. The bathrooms, I don't know if we have photos, and the kitchen were all updated in sort of a, a mid-century friendly style. He did that. He he has actually done most of this work. Here's where you see some of the materials and these skylights. So the house is essentially transparent. There was, mm -hmm. I said, that wall of windows on the south. And the north also is a wall of windows, the whole north, because you don't have the solar gain problem. And then up above, there are skylights. So McPherson brought in light from all around. And then Schaefer, the man who, who has uh, been rehabbing it, both um, made those skylights better so they're more weatherproof. But he also went with that lightness. And when he redid the bathrooms, he put clear story windows on them. So there's one more place that light is coming in. He really had a touch for it. And this is one of the things you only find out if you go there and talk to him. If I'd just been sitting talking, you know, looking at the photos as I did during the pandemic, I wouldn't have heard it. I wouldn't have heard him say that he first fell in love with mid-century houses when he was a Cub Scout. Oh, He's interesting. about my age. So it's decades ago. He was a Cub Scout and the Cub Scout pack was meeting in a mid-century house. And that's where he got this taste for this style. And now, um, 14 years ago in 2008, he buys one and really redoes it very, very closely adhering to the style. Furniture is a different question, but the house itself really, I mean, it looks very much as if it might have in uh, the late 50s, about 1957 when it was finished. Oh, absolutely. Wow, that's so impressive that he did all of this work himself. I mean, there's so many beautiful details that you can tell there, you know, that he's kind of infused a lot of effort into. Yeah, yeah. And I should say he's asking 399000 for it. He's he's moving because he's moving in with a family member. Um, but he, look at this kitchen. Yeah. So the kitchen is essentially the footprint that it was, but he brought in all new materials because most people don't want a mid-century kitchen. It looks like it would be, if you were designing a kitchen in 1957 with the materials we have today, this is probably what we, you would have built. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't, that's the thing I feel like we run into a lot. When someone updates the kitchen, you can tell. You can tell it looks so different than the rest of the house. And indeed, a lot of mid-century kitchens kind of look the same and some people kind of embrace that and play it up. But this doesn't stick out as, oh, this is so different than the rest of the house. This looks like it just kind of blends in as a beautiful update, but not in a jarring way, in a very kind of seamless way. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And while we're on this photo, I should say, look at all that northern, the essentially yeah. the whole north wall of the house is windows, both bedrooms and kitchen. And, and what you see off to the, uh, in the middle there in the rear would be uh, the breakfast room. It's all windows. It, it's on Country Club Lane in Olympia Fields, which was 
a street of primarily mid-century houses built as the street leads into the Olympia Fields Country Club. The one right next door was also by McPherson. Um, there's a Keck house down the street that I wrote about, uh, well, in 2022 that mm -hmm. was sold. It needed rehab. Um, yeah. No, sorry. It didn't need rehab. The Keck house didn't need rehab. It sold very quickly over its asking price. Its asking price was $399. That was earlier this year. And another McPherson sold in Homewood, I think yeah. also this year or maybe in late 2021, that needed rehab. And it went quickly, too. Um, these houses... There's a, there's a lot of great mid-century stuff in Homewood, Flossmoor, Country Club Hills, Olympia Fields, which were booming at that in that part of the century, the 20th yeah. century. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll hear back about this house and what once it sells. We've got a couple more to, still to get to. Let's talk about uh, Dan Proft, the uh, the radio host and conservative activist behind political mailers that a lot of people might have received. Um, he says he's leaving Illinois. He's done. Yeah, this was kind of interesting. He sold a condo in Lake Point Tower yeah. uh, in September, and I waited to see whether he was buying something else here. Ultimately, his name did not show up in any records, so I got in touch with him via email, and he said, yeah, I am not only not buying, but not renting another home in Chicago. He has been um, very critical mm -hmm. of um, Chicago and Illinois Democrats for their handling of crime, their handling of property taxes. Uh, and um, he said, I'm not going to own or rent property in Chicago anymore. If I do, he said he'll be back next spring, probably staying in short term rentals to play golf with Chicago friends. And if he were to take a permanent address in this area again, it would most likely be in Northwest Indiana. And we know a lot about the leakage of Chicagoans over to Northwest Indiana for those reasons, property tax, property taxes, crime and other things. Um, he would be joining that group. Uh, sold this. And, and it's interesting. He talked about how, as a lot of um, people in, in on his side of the fence are about how the crime and, and other issues are really holding down property values. And you can kind of see the equation. Given I looked at his two properties, this one he bought in uh, 2006 for $405,000 and he sold it in 2022 for 415. He made a very small amount um, in that time. Uh, he did buy at the height of the market 2006. Nevertheless, he, he only made very small proceeds in 16 years. In Florida, he bought a house in Naples in 2018 for $940,000. And I looked at the estimates on two different real estate sites. And according to them, uh, it's now worth more than 2.3 million. So the value of that home, the estimated value of that home has more than doubled in four years while he made $10,000 on his condo in Chicago in 16 years. Um, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a reporter. Right. Um, those numbers do back up what he has to say, uh, but they also line right up with a lot of what you and I have discussed about how Chicago has been the slowest rising real estate market in, in among big cities for a very long time. I was going to say there's there's many reasons kind of factoring into that and we could kind of cherry pick the ones we want if we like, but there are, you know, important to acknowledge that there are a lot of reasons that go into housing pricing and, and things like that in a general region, for sure. And he may already have been inclined to spend more time in Florida than in Chicago. Sure. I don't know. I specifically asked him about his real estate transaction. Yeah, right, right. Because you're, you're here to talk about real estate. That's your thing, that's man. That's the only thing I ever do. <laughs> You live real estate. All right. Well, we have talked about this house that was connected to the Titanic. This Titanic survivor lived there and there was this rehab going on there. We've talked about it a couple of times, but now you can rent part of this. You can tell me about this place. Yeah. Well, it would be possible to rent all of it. It would cost you $51,000 a month. Okay. A little um, out of my budget, but go yeah. on. <laughs> um, it's being offered as two pieces, one at 28000 and one at 23000 Um this, it also is still for sale at 11 and a half million. This is this incredible uh, house on Lakeview, um, in, on Lakeview in Lincoln Park, designed by David Adler and Henry Dangler in 1917 for Emily Ryerson, who with three of her kids survived the Titanic. Their, her husband, their father died, went down with the ship. Uh, five years later, she built, that was 1912. Five years later, she builds this house 
And it really, I mean, it is palatial, uh, or it was, hadn't been residential from 1946 until it was sold in 2016 to redevelopers. It had been a private school. It had been an addiction and, and behavioral therapy center. Um, now it's being reoffered as residential. But so again, it was, it was bought in 2016. Then it was sold again to another developer in 2017. Been, been rehab, been available for a while, been on the market. Uh, it was on the market as for sale as two pieces. It's on the market for sale as one full-sized house. And now, because it has been on the market for a while, they are also offering it for rent. So you can rent this home that was built for a Titanic survivor. That's so interesting. And there's a lot of really beautiful details in, in these rooms. A lot of the, the molding and the paneling is really beautiful. And these ceilings in that, that, uh, that main living room area we were just looking at in the photos, it's this really high gloss ceiling. So the light just kind of bounces off of it and makes the room look so airy and beautiful. I walked through when they had just bought it, when the rehab center had moved out and it was being sold for yeah. rehab. This had been used as a basketball court. There was there were basketball hoops in this room. Well, and they obviously took all that out, but it's this beautiful sunny space overlooking the park. Here's one of the staircases. It's a pretty, you know, it was built to be grand, palatial, as you said. Yeah, yeah palatial. First yeah. floor is really sort of receiving or originally sort of receiving rooms, and then you would proceed up this staircase very grandly and be delivered to that formal ballroom or living room overlooking the the park. She, the Ryersons were very, very wealthy and yeah. she built a house befitting her status. Yeah, certainly. And this is, if I remember right, this is kind of an odd shaped lot, right? It's kind of triangular. Isn't this the one? Uh, I don't remember whether it's triangular. The building is an L shape, but I yeah. don't remember whether the lot is triangular. And before we get too far off the Titanic, I w <laughs> you can never really get off the Titanic right. unless there's a lifeboat. Um the very interesting thing about Emily Ryerson and her kids surviving is that, as I said, their, their husband and father died, Arthur Ryerson. He first, he says about his older, the older son who's in the group, there was another son who wasn't on the boat. He talks people into letting the son onto the lifeboat where his wife and daughters are. They're only taking females. And he mm -hmm. says, no, this, this boy needs to be with his mother. And then, he, and then he ends up going down with the ship. Oh. And he's in the movie. He's in the 1997 movie. If you remember, Jack Dawson, Leonardo DiCaprio, basically sort of picks up and absconds with a wealthy man's coat so he mm -hmm. can go to the first class part of the boat. This is that guy, Arthur Ryerson. The, the, uh, we don't know that it actually happened, but the, the man with the coat in the movie is Arthur Ryerson. And... His widow is the one who built the house. Oh, isn't that an interesting detail? Yeah. Some weird Chicago trivia for when you do your umpteenth watching of Titanic this weekend. As I do every weekend. That's right. <laughs> as one does. Certainly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. A lot of beautiful details in, in this home as well. So, all right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, well, one of the things is... Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I was about to tell you a story that I'm working on. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's because we talked about the Century, the the Century and Consumers buildings on State Street, mm -hmm. those two historical high rises the federal government wants to tear down. I'll be attending the first hearings about um, that the government, the federal government is doing, the Department of General Services is doing about what to do with the buildings and what it would entail. Oh, interesting. Demolition, what the environmental uh, conditions are. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will look forward to a report back from that next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, an NIH grant will further a Chicago company's software platform that could help doctors more accurately treat cancer. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Every month, Cranes Forum goes deep to explore critical issues challenging Chicago and the region. On November 17th, we're excited to bring this editorial initiative from the page to the stage with our Forum Live event. 
We invite you to join us at the Marriott Marquis, where you'll hear different perspectives from a mix of influential leaders, both national and local. The event will kick off with a dynamic keynote conversation with Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot as we look at what lies ahead for the city that works. The opening segment will be followed by an impressive group of leading strategists diving into several important topics. Attendees will choose one of three breakout panel discussions after the opening keynote, including affordable housing, the future of behavioral health, or the state of local news and policy coverage. Learn more and secure your seat by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash forum live. From Governor J.B. Pritzker and U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth at the top of the ticket to races for the state House and Senate and even a labor rights amendment to the state constitution, Democrats for the most part were ahead in Tuesday's election, though election night ended with some races in Illinois and elsewhere still too close to call. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that Duckworth led the state Democratic ticket both in percentage of the vote and the total raw vote received. All of those so-called leaders in Washington who act so scared of progress that they keep trying to divide us, that they keep trying to slip away, our re- to strip away our reproductive rights, that they keep backing the gun lobby. Let me just say this. I hope you're ready for a fight. Big GOP names and funding groups took a pass on the contest, leaving GOP nominee Kathy Salvi to fight on her own. While she and I differ on many issues, we share the view that we need to strengthen our economy make our communities safe, and restore civility to our political system. The surprise of the night, as Hines reported, was Pritzker's margin. The Democratic incumbent came in with over 54 percent of the vote. Pritzker's margin over Republican challenger Darren Bailey is about 14 percentage points, and that's above the 8 to 10 percent margin that most observers had expected, Hines noted. The rest of the statewide Democratic ticket won two, with Illinois Comptroller Susanna Mendoza getting the most votes. And that appeared to seep further down the ballot, with Republicans not now appearing to pick up any seats in the House or Senate. House GOP leader Jim Durkin announced early Wednesday morning that he would not seek another term as the chamber's minority leader. Illinois voters also voted in favor of amending the Illinois Constitution to guarantee workers' rights to bargain collectively, and voters approved a property tax hike for the Cook County Forest Preserve District. Also, Democrat Elizabeth Rochford declared victory over Republican Mark Curran in the battle for an Illinois Supreme Court seat in the north and northwest suburbs. That means Democrats will keep a majority of the high court in the state. Cook County Chief Judge Tim Evans also turned aside a challenge to his retention as judge. In the next episode, I'll talk with Crane's political columnist Greg Hines for in-depth analysis and perspective on Tuesday's election results. In an announcement on Tuesday afternoon, Moody's Investors Service bumped its take on city general obligation bonds to BAA3 from BA1. Though the upgrade is only one notch, it moves city debt from non-investment grade and substantial credit risk to investment grade and a moderate credit risk category. The New York firm also upgraded $4.3 billion in debt on city water and sewer revenue bonds. Moody's cited the city's moves under former Mayor Rahm Emanuel and later Mayor Lightfoot to hike pension fund contributions to the actuarially required level. The action means the city is slowly catching up on debt rather than getting deeper in the hole every year. Moody's also praised city governance, saying Chicago, quote, has improved budgetary management through a willingness and ability to increase revenue that reduced a structural deficit and facilitated the elimination of debt-based budget maneuvers and pension cost deferrals. It added that leverage and fixed costs will remain very high for for many years. The action came a day after the city council approved Lightfoot's proposed 2023 budget on a series of relatively close votes, and about two weeks after Fitch Ratings upgraded city debt for the first time in 12 years. The upgrade also comes as the city prepares for a $757 million bond sale expected to price the week of November 28th. The money raised will help community development and infrastructure projects, and the sale will also include Chicago's first ESG issuance. 
The owner of a Northbrook shopping center anchored by a Mariano's grocery store has cashed out for a loss. Crane's Albie Galoon reported, citing Cook County property records, that CBRE Investment Management has sold the shops at Glen Point, a nearly 149,000-square-foot property next to I-94, in two transactions to two different buyers, totaling $60.5 million. And that's about 8% less than the $65.7 million that the CBRE unit paid for the shopping center in November of 2015. Galoon pointed out in reporting that the decline in value doesn't fit with the broader narrative about grocery-anchored shopping centers, a relatively safe bet in the uncertain world of retail real estate shaken up by e-commerce and the COVID-19 pandemic. Investors that own shopping centers with grocery stores, or just own the stores themselves, have generally made out well on the investments over the past several years. On the other hand, Galoon also noted, rising interest rates and a pullback in lending this year have depressed real estate values across the board, wiping out paper gains for many investors. An index of strip shopping center values compiled by California research firm Green Street has declined 13 percent from its peak earlier this year. Rising property taxes may have also pulled down the value of the shopping center. Glen Point's taxes increased to $1.6 million last year, up 90 percent from 2016. That according to the Cook County Treasurer. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that Symbiosis, a Chicago precision medicine company, was awarded a $2 million Phase II small business innovation research contract from the National Cancer Institute, part of the National Institutes of Health. The startup, founded in 2018, is building what it calls the TumorScope software platform, which encompasses its Phenoscope product and could help physicians more accurately treat cancerous tumors, the company says. Davis reported that Symbiosis successfully completed a Phase 1 contract in 2021 to develop the Phenoscope. With this new contract, the company says it will expand access to the product to a broader user base. The startup says it uses AI and biophysical simulations to individualize care and to eliminate uncertainty by assessing how a patient will respond to therapy at the time of treatment planning, rather than using a trial-and-error approach. The company says its software can generate results for physicians in mere minutes. Symbiosis also raised $15 million last year to grow the business. At the time, the company said it worked with 20 cancer institutions across the U.S. Early research showed the symbiosis technology demonstrated more than 90% accuracy in predicting whether an early breast cancer tumor would respond to therapy. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.